Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle be in Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which, par my argument, definitely count. Wow, Dan. Those are some bold words. Well, I'm mischievous Mark Chinacchio, and I, too, own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals. But unlike Dan, I truly, firmly, sincerely believe that the annuals don't count. Well, everybody, thank you for joining us for an Amazing Friends episode of the Amazing Spider Talk, the show where two fans and a creator uncover the strange, fun, and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. If you want to swing along with us on our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future, subscribe to Amazing Spider Talk on your favorite podcast app. Every other week, we put out a mainline episode of our flagship show, and sprinkled in between, we review new comics as well as interview some of the greatest Spider-Man creators of yesterday and today. So this is the perfect time to start listening. Yeah, and in this episode of The Amazing Spider Talk, we're joined by one of our amazing friends. This friend spent seven years working as a comic book editor at Marvel Comics, where he worked on books you might have heard of, like The Avengers, The Amazing Spider-Man, Wolverine, and Captain America. His time working with Spider-Man, which is, you know, uh, the name of our show, our namesake, saw him working alongside creators you might have heard of, like Stan Lee, Mark Wade, Joe Kelly, Dan Slott, and Stephen Wacker, to produce the brand new day stories, including the blockbuster Barack Obama issue up through the events of Superior Spider-Man. Yeah, a couple of books you might have heard of for sure. Later, he would join the editorial staff of Valiant Entertainment and now works as a senior writer and producer for the New York City office of the mayor, as well as the host of the political comedy show Electoral Dysfunction. Welcome to the show, Tom Brennan. Well, now let's meet one of our amazing spider friends, the kind of guy I go to other friends and recommend. Find out about the things they created. You'll love them so much that you wish you dated. But you're just friends. They're an amazing friend. A friend, a friend, a friend. They're an amazing friend. Hey, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for having me. And since you guys have your alliterative nicknames, if you don't mind, I'm going to pull from when I was in the letters columns all the way back when in the day. You can just call me Temerarius Tom Brennan, which I picked because Temerarius is the weakest possible word that means bold and brave. So I love that. <laughs> uh, thanks for having me, guys. It's, it's, it's great to be here. I love your show. Well, that's really kind of you. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We've been a big fan of your work over the years. Mark and I are uh, one of the loudest voices of, of love and support for the brand new day era and, and everything that came with it. So we're really eager to talk to you. And uh, we've had a number of your colleagues on the show over the years to kind of dig into the juice here. So we're really excited to, to hear your take on everything. 
Well, thank you. Thank you for standing up for that era. You know, the survivors, as I like to call those of us who worked on Brand New Day, uh, we really appreciate it. It was so much fun. It was a fun thing to be a part of. And it was a thing that, you know, we'll get into it. I don't want to jump ahead. But a, a thing that when I started at Marvel, part of why I'd been hired was to work specifically with Steve Wacker on these books. And so it is crazy to me to remember a time when no one in the world knew what Brand New Day would be or what One More Day would be. Remember that sort of before time when I was working there then and like all that ramp up and anticipation. And now it is 10 years ago. And it's crazy to me like <laughs> how much, you know, it was the the biggest thing that was going to change comics forever. And it did. And now it is, you know, now it is the past. And that is fascinating to me. <laughs> I remember a young Dan Gavazdan going into a comic book store. This is like before I knew anything about the editorial behind the scenes and the desire to undo the marriage. Because as a kid, everywhere you looked, like as a kid of the 90s, everywhere you looked, it was Peter Parker and Mary Jane. So when I saw those posters for One More Day and I went into this random comic book shop in Baltimore and the guy behind the counter told me, you know, what he suspected Brand New Day would be about. And he was right. I thought he was crazy. And I was like, I'm never coming to this comic book shop again. <laughs> this can't actually be right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember when I was when I was brought on board at Marvel, like I knew that that was the certainly rumors had been brewing about undoing the marriage. And like like you guys, yeah, I, I you know, I was a kid in the 90s. So I only had the frame of reference, really, of the marriage. I guess I was born before they got married at Chase Stadium. But I don't remember <laughs> that. I don't remember much of the 80s except watching Ghostbusters and Back to the Future a thousand times. So that was my only frame of reference, too. And I remember both, you know, having a similar sort of on the one hand, excited at this idea of, you know, I had never as a reader, let alone to be an editor working on these stories, excited at this idea of, working on stories about, you know, young, single Peter Parker, a Peter Parker who was similar to me at the time. When I started at Marvel, I was 24, so I, I could relate even more to some of these stories. But also, the only Spider-Man I knew was married to Mary Jane. So I was like, this is my, it's like, you know, you're, you're ripping up my childhood. But also, it seems kind of like an interesting idea. And honestly, it was my childhood that great that we shouldn't rip it up. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> and it was really, it was exciting. But, you know, looking back at those plans, I remember when I, again, I started in March of 2007. And Brand New Day, I believe, launched in January of 2008. And I remember just reading the plans and being like, they can't do this. They're going to do this. Oh, my God, they're going to do this. And suddenly being like, I'm going to be part of doing this. Months ago, I would have been just a guy on the Internet with, you know, whatever the 2007 equivalent of a podcast, you know, being like, what are they going to do? And now not only to be told, like, you're hired, your dream job, you get your dream job, you're working at Marvel and on day one, they're like, by the way, here are the plans that are going to you know, set this inter set the Internet on fire. And you're a part of it now <laughs> was crazy. So but it was so much fun to work on. And, and I got to work with such a wide variety of creators. And it, it was a if I may, you know, pun intended, amazing ride. Let's let's get into a little more background on on you here, Tom. So, you know, we always like to kind of warm our audience up here with a with a kind of an origin story question. So what's what is your origin story with comics here? Like, how did you, what were some of the first comics you read when you were younger? How did those connect with you? And how did that inspire you to pursue a, a job in the industry at the time? I became interested in 
Marvel comics, specifically through the Marvel trading cards, like the season one, series one, rather, all the way back in 1990. And I remember thinking, even then I was seven. So I, you know, I, I didn't have the most sophisticated mind, but <laughs> it was a mean thing to say about a seven year old. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> I remember even then being like, all right, they kind of got you up to speed on everything about the Marvel Universe in, you know, on the back of these cards. And suddenly it felt like within a few months, I went from knowing who Captain America and Spider-Man and the Hulk were because of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade to knowing the entire universe and sort of, you know, maybe not every little bit, but the general stories, the rivalries. And I wanted to know more. And the, the, the trading cards are really what got me in. And my mother kindly, despite not being the world's biggest comic book fan, to say the least, got me a subscription to Amazing Spider-Man. So I started there. And I think the first, oh gosh, the issue number escapes me, but it would have been in the 300s. It was a two part. All right. So there was a two part Venom story. And then the next part right after it was a standalone with Sandman and the Avengers. I'll let one of the two of you decide what number those are. I wonder if this is Venom Island. Does that make yes, sense? It, yes. Yeah. It, oh, it's the one where, it. <laughs> where he fakes his own death at the end so that Venom thinks yeah. he won and swims away. Which I remember even as a kid being like, that's crazy. <laughs> but that was when I started. That was sort of my first real comic experience. There had been one other comic that was one of the first comics that I got. But this was just sort of a standalone thing, which is, I believe, Marvel Team Up. I think it was t- number 25 where he teams up with Black Panther, which my sister got me as a gift because there was a candy store across the street from our, our apartment building. It was like a little like corner, dusty candy store that was just selling comics and old ones at the same cover price. And this was 1990, oh, so wow. it was a dollar. It wasn't that much more, but it was a, a 1970s comic that had been sold, I think, for 25, 50 cents, and she got it for 50 cents or whatever. So that was wow. maybe the first comic, and it was... Uh, Black Panther and Spider-Man fight Stegron. And I remember even as a kid just looking at the cover and being like, what is happening? These two guys are fighting a dinosaur, man. (laughs) It was like everything you wanted about comics because the cover is like Stegron's on some spaceship platform and he's thrown Spider-Man off and Black Panther (laughs) is swinging in to rescue him. And I remember as a kid being like, what is happening? And uh, that was the that was, I think, the first comic book I owned. And I just read that story, but I became a regular reader of Amazing Spider-Man. And I really liked Amazing Spider-Man. I really liked the Avengers. I was one of the few, you know, it's weird to say now because the Avengers are the biggest thing in the planet. But you guys probably remember the 90s when it was like, it was, you know, Claremont and Lee's X-Men, McFarlane, Spider-Man, and then everything else. You're a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> even within the nerds it was like you don't like yeah. the cool comics but i loved the avengers and you know particularly <laughs> the heroes return uh busiek Perez run of the avengers was a really exciting thing for me i enjoyed it so much and that also like those sort of mainstream superhero books i got into jla the the grant morrison jla run off of that too what really excited me about Marvel Comics. I grew up in New York City and New York City was such a character in the comics and knowing that like Marvel was based there and I always liked I knew I wanted to do something in arts and entertainment and I you know thought about LA certainly when I was in college I went to school I went to Drexel University with fellow Spider-Man eventual Spider-Man editor Ellie Pyle she and I met in college and I thought about LA for a little bit but the idea, like, I love New York City. I'm from here. I still live here. I, as you guys mentioned, now work specifically for the city. 
the fact that New York was a living, breathing character in these comics was so exciting to me. Uh, just as like your imagine your hometown is a, is the main character of the books. And that excited me. And the fact that Marvel was based in New York and was a New York kind of brand was very exciting to me, too. So that's what where that kind of spurred it with that. It's interesting. It wasn't I can't draw to save my life. You know what? Like I would doodle, but I was terrible at it. But it was much more the New York of it all that that really inspired me to to seek out Marvel and potentially a career in comics. And that's that's kind of where it, the 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 seeds were planted, I guess. So as we said in our kind of intro, our, our, our brief conversation there, you joined the editorial team for Amazing Spider-Man during an era where the book was at its most frenetic editorially and production-wise. And I don't think it's ever really quite gotten up to that level again. And we've spoken to several creators from Brand New Day, but from an editorial standpoint, what was the pacing of the triple ship like for you, your workload and your stress level? I was too young in my career to really know how stressful it was. <laughs> uh, at the same time, I've been anxious since like 1986. So I, you know, it almost just felt normal for me. I had interned at Marvel in college. I went to, as I mentioned, Drexel University and part of Drexel's a- academic program is to have a, like they really stress working in the field that you're studying. And so I somehow got a name of an editor at Marvel and sent them everything I'd written and eventually made a contact and got a foot in the door to intern. But what made me a, I didn't go back to Marvel after college. Some interns, as I know, like have gone directly onto editorial work. That wasn't the case. I worked for CBS News as a production assistant for a little bit. And that made me an appealing candidate to Steve Wacker, who was putting together the team around Brand New Day. And he had done a weekly series, 52, at DC, and he knew that it was a very different pace than the average comic book. And the fact that I had worked in TV news, you know, even in a small role, I don't, I don't want to pretend I wasn't, you know, it was, it wasn't the newsroom. I wasn't like pounding my fist down on the table and and holding, you know, people to account. I was running scripts and getting coffee and, you know, in the back of the control room. But because I had had that experience of this sort of relentless pace, that made me. Uh, an appealing, you know, person to uh, to him to work with and and work on this really unique mechanism because it's different than any other comics. It was, you know, in a way, I loved it. It was so unique. And another way, I noticed later in my career when working on just a regular monthly title, I was like, ooh, the <laughs> the aggressive ship schedule does not help, did did not prepare me for this. It's such a different mechanism. In a week, we could be working on a book that was going to print that week. And have the finished comic for the book that was going to print in three months. But, you know, having to and thus from there kind of having to, to, you know, navigate any number of things in between. And we worked with a wide variety of writers and, and artists. And it was such a fun experience. But at the same time, there were those moments where it's like the first week of May. We got this. The book's done. It's perfect. Nailed. Out the door. Great job, everyone. The second week of May. That book is in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> the art's running behind you know we're still figuring out the dialogue third week of may it's all right it's decent shape uh and it was such a roller coaster of emotions what i think was so great about it was steve as a leader he really knew how to let everyone on the team have the room that they needed and when i started there were four writers it was uh dan slot bob gale mark guggenheim and zeb wells at the beginning of that brand new day run and it sort of yeah. each month they they each got their their three issue arc and eventually it expanded to include Joe Kelly, Mark Wade, 
Roger Stern wrote a few things in there. I think Fred Van Lente and Brian Reed as well contributed to it. And I think Chris Gage a little bit as well. I apologize to them for saying, I think it's been so many years now. (laughs) It's all just one. It feels like the longest week of my life. Uh, But he did such a good job of letting them have the room to create while, you know, enforcing the, the, you know, the guidelines and the deadlines. Like he, I like to say, he didn't necessarily let them color outside the lines. He set the lines very clearly and let them color like crazy within those lines. And he is, you know, just, he knows how to, I learned so much from him. I'm a little, he's a little more outgoing than I am. I'm a little more shy. And I learned so much from him about the importance of establishing that personal rapport. And in those cases, in the case of those books, as I mentioned, you, we worked with, I feel like every artist in the industry over the course of three years and 102 issues of, of that brand new day run. I don't think there was a single one that he didn't, you know, at least try to get on the phone with every day. Sometimes they weren't phone people, but he he made that effort to connect with all of them and really let them know that that they had someone in their corner with him as a as the senior editor and, you know, made them feel that they were a part of something special, uh, which they were. But, you know, early in that process, it's hard to tell. That was the big thing to me was watching his example and, and learning from that. You don't want something Tom Brevoort says a lot legendary editor and uh, guru to the stars of, of comics uh, about how creators get the credit and editors get the blame and that's how it should be. And that's true. But I think Steve really in that situation without taking the glory from the creators and letting them have their, their spotlight deserves the credit for that run being as memorable and successful as it is because he really put it on his back and, and brought it through the finish line. In regards to like creative focus, you know, as an editor during that run, you know, where are you guys spending most of your time? Are you keeping an eye on like, okay, the heart of this is Peter Parker. So that's the thing we're going to track the most or um, like, you know, because the appeal to me of that era was even if I didn't like a story the next week, I got something completely different, you know, and, and there was so much variability. I like, you know, nowadays, if you don't like a story, you're stuck with it for like six months. Right. Um, yeah. You know, if you're, if you're lucky, that was um, our goal. Get rid of it as quick as you can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, no, no, but I don't, I don't mean, no, no, I understand. Like, I'm sorry. You know, that, but that was like the fun of it. And not even if you didn't like it, it was like, you got something wildly different oftentimes, you know, like one week it's a blizzard in New York and the next week we got a goblin mystery going on. You know, what was the creative focus from the team during all this to kind of make it feel like one thing? I mean, I think I remember when I came in uh, a big thing that, that, that I really enjoyed about it. Again, what made it so unique from other comic books, so many other comic books, you know, it's the, it is uh, it's, you know, one creative team. And as an editor, you're the sounding board and, and the partner with them. Everyone gave feedback, all the writers, everyone read everyone's scripts when they came in so that, you know, and almost right away, you know, with very few exceptions, you know, if a script came in, it was sent to the entire team for everyone to read and sort of coordinate, not just coordinate their bits, but provide that feedback. And so I think by the end, it really became the kind of thing where, like you look at Dan Slott's run right after Brand New Day ended, which uh, was, you know, the big time run, which is a great run. But even so, the Dan Slott writing there is a little different from the Dan Slott writing of Brand New Day. And part of that is because it was such a more collaborative process and, and other writers kind of gave their feedback and notes so that everything lined up. I think the goal when I came in, 
as was communicated to me, was let's sort of get back to that classic Peter Parker, which is a great starting point. And what it what was interesting about that is that I think rather than, you know, outside of the basic rules of Peter Parker's, you know, always going to fight like crazy to do the right thing and accept that because he wears a mask, no one's going to know Peter Parker was responsible for the right thing. And more likely than not, the people who love him will be furious with him because they didn't know. Like, stop and think about Peter Parker for a second. If you didn't know he was a superhero, you'd hate that guy. So you'd, be, <laughs> you'd be like, why? Dude, every time I'm just like, let's go get some coffee. You show up covered in sweat, 45 minutes late. And then you're like, oh, I missed the train. Just You're always going to miss the train. Leave earlier. <laughs> but I think what was interesting about that was that with while keeping those sort of those general rules there, there wasn't so much of a mandate. In fact, it felt almost like improvisation of like, all right, wait a minute. So now that we've changed the rules, like, let's see what happens. You know, if this is true, what else is true? Like, what new things can we have? Again, without without compromising the characters, you know, core integrity and core core belief systems. And that was a really fun thing about it. You know, like there was no like there was there was some long term planning stuff. Certainly, I think uh, the menace storyline, the 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 new goblin menace. I know from day one they had decided that, who you know, that that was going to go, going to be the the new love interest or, or the new friend's love interest, rather new Harry Osborne love interest. <laughs> The new friend. The uh, minute I left the company, I was like, I don't even know who these characters are. I know that was that was planned from from the get go. And like some of those longer term things were there. You know, we found things that excited people along the way. You know, I think they're, the, the character Carly Cooper is a pretty good example that that was just sort of like she was kind of like a supporting character that suddenly audiences liked her and were charmed by her. J. Jonah Jameson's father returns during that run. And likewise, I think he was just kind of going to be in the background, but audiences really responded. So we figured out ways to make him more relevant and, and more involved down the line. I remember a conversation where he was going to get killed very early on and everyone was like, but I love him. He's so nice. And they're like, forget <laughs> it. We're not killing him. Not during this run. Maybe later. Um, <laughs> like a lot changed in the in the the smaller the smaller kind of stuff. Like we we allowed that sort of they allowed to change and, and, you know, pull up the track and, and play and play in new directions and that kind of thing. And that was a lot of fun. Like that was a really cool part about it. We recognized that we were in this experimental world and tried not to put too many limits on what the new things were going to be. I remember a very early pitch when Stacy was going to come back after the, the brand new day in the brand new day reboot, they opted to to throw that out because it felt like, you know, one too many things. But I say that just, so, you know, like to clear, like no, you know, no idea was, was too, n- every idea was worth consideration, I think at, at the various retreats. And that was really cool and different from what I've seen and, and dealt with, with some other comics, I think. Hey, quick question. Yes. Um, pertinent to today, Harry Osborne's return in the brand new day thing. Was that always planned that he was in Europe or was that ever associated with the Mephisto deal? Because I think the two often get misconstrued and it does seem strange that Harry came back coincidentally at the same time, you know, from Europe, just the same time that the whole world got rebooted. Can you talk about that briefly? Because we're dealing with Harry Osborn in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man right now. 
Dan, so. stop trying to poke holes in my amazing Spider-Man theories in the current by asking the editor from this is 13 really- years ago about it. I, you uh, know, uh, my theory is, but but uh, we'll let you answer, Tom. But I'm just saying this this, this the history behind this goes deeper than than just this question here. But, I just want to point: know. it is not was not necessary to put the number of years since when I started. Oh, sorry. <laughs> 13 years. I was like, that's not possible. 13 years ago, I was seven. Wait, no, I'm 37. Oh God. <laughs> I remember I didn't work on I think it's important is I didn't really work on one more day except to read the scripts and they came in that was still run by Axel Alonso and and that whole team I know that initially there had been thoughts about connecting you know connecting specifically and that maybe that like what Mephisto did would be like would go back to an early you know I think they found some random comic from the 70s and like they'd change one thing and that one thing would be like the butterfly effect that changes everything. And in the process, Harry Osborne doesn't die. And I think they threw that out just because it was like so complicated and, and, and uh, they opted against it. So I do think that that initially played a role in, in that process. And I think it just, they decided, you know what, we've brought plenty of people back (laughs) with flimsier (laughs) reasons than this. (laughs) So forget it. Harry's alive again. Like father, like son. Yeah. There you go. Well, in terms of characters that are not generally associated with the Spider-Man family, but this is certainly one of the most famous issues of Spider-Man that you've worked on. Amazing, terrible transition, I know. Uh, Amazing Spider-Man number 583, Mm -hmm. also known as the Obama issue. So behind me here, it's my my original, it's my fresh off the presses edition that I had sitting behind me just for effect. Huge issue. It's Look, it's election season. You know, I follow you on Twitter. You seem like a pretty political guy. So let's let's talk a little bit about this comic here. I mean, you know, I guess a little bit in terms of, you know, some of the background in terms of how it came together, but also, you know, what 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 did working on something like this mean for you? I mean, like like this 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 is one of those books that seems to kind of transcend superhero comics in terms of, you know, the zeitgeist and what it means. And, you know, obviously Obama's place in history. I, I mean, there's there's so much going on here. I, I would love to hear you just kind of t- not only just talk about it from a procedural standpoint, but also, you know, again, emotionally, whatever, mentally, whatever. What did, what did it mean for you to kind of be working on something like this? Uh, that's a great question. And I, I do get asked about it a lot. I think what was really cool about, first of all, what's interesting, I remember when we worked on it, as you mentioned, I, I frequent Twitter with my political opinions. Which I want to be clear, you know, to your audience, I am unbearable on Twitter. I understand that Uh, if there's anyone who's like chooses to follow this and they have wildly different politics than me and they're like, oh, this jerk. I want you to know that my mostly, you know, my family agrees with me 100 percent on politics and they also think I'm a jerk. So it is a it's just the personality. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think what was really cool about it is that, you know, it didn't. You know, uh, and I, I bring up the Internet to say I recall there being like, a, oh, of course, they're sucking up to to this candidate, but they'd <laughs> never do it for a Republican. But that came about because Barack Obama had been uh, it was after the election. He was interviewed in The New York Times and it was a little kind of puff piece of things he liked as a kid. He mentioned he collected Spider-Man comics and that that was the the inspiration. And I remember I came to work that day. I read it and I had this like I got this great idea. And it was, you know, imagine that you had a great idea 
the same day that everyone else at the company had the exact same great idea. <laughs> so it's like I I will I will frequently kind of play it up. I'm like, it was my idea. And also Joe Casada had the same idea and Steve Wacker had the same idea that day as well. And Tom Brevoort did as well. But I remember being like, I got a great idea. And Steve was, you know, being a very good mentor figure was like, what do you think? And he's like, oh, that's an interesting idea. He's like, good news. We were already told to do it an hour ago. And I was like, Damn. Was like but I didn't want, I remember being like, but I want you to feel discouraged. I wanted to make sure that you knew that you could t- pitch me your idea. And I was like, that's actually very cool of you. Thank you. So uh, it had... I'd say I'll talk a little bit about the process first. What's interesting is that we had a very limited window to do it. And the issue that it went against 583 was just a standalone issue that was sort of, I think it was Mark Wade and Barry Kitson. And it's it was a, a standalone with Peter, a classic Peter Parker trying to go on dates while crime happens kind of story. And it was sort of, I remember there being like, a, well, Mark and Barry will hit it. It's going to be such a good comic. And we got John Romita Sr. to do the the main, the real, the, the main cover, which was like Spider-Man and, and, you know, a couple of, I was like Peter Parker ditching out on crime to go on dates and Spider-Man in the background. Like, Ugh. and I remember everyone thinking like, it'll be a great comic, but it's a one-off. I don't know. You know, it's after one story arc and before the next, ooh, they might be, might be hard for sales on that month. So that's an, that's a little <laughs> bit of irony that it ended up being the highest selling comic of the two thousands, but figuring out that window is difficult and it timeline wise, five eighty four would have been preferable for us because we would mm. have had more time to produce it. But that was the beginning. Do you guys remember the name of the story arc that, that, that begins in five eighty four? It was character assassination, which we all oh, agreed no. was probably not a great comic <laughs> to have <laughs> a president. Uh, and I remember there was a brief window where it looked like it wasn't going to happen because, again, the timeline, I think it was like we had basically like 12 days to do this. It felt like maybe if that and Steve, unfortunately, had to go out of town. And I remember I got an email from him after it looked like it was dead where he's like, hey, you're going to have a really busy day today. I'm going to need you to call Phil Jimenez and coach him through finishing something real quick. Sorry, I'm not in the office. We had a lot of work. Scroll back through these emails. You'll see what's up. And I was like, oh, gosh, we're doing it. I know uh, Steve Steve thought Zeb was a good choice because Zeb, you know, is Zeb Wells is just a master of comedy, but without being goofy comedy. You know, it's like he could figure out how to hit those beats of the story that, you know, needs to be a little tongue in cheek but also needs to respect the gravity of the moment. And Zeb and Todd Nock were our friends and, and had wanted to work together for a long time. And Todd is sort of a master of what kind of style you'd want for that, for that kind of a story. Like you want something a little more mainstream, but fun and approachable. And then on top of it, Todd is very fast. Uh, so, and I remember it felt like it was like bucket brigade style Zeb, like we got the plot approved and then Zeb delivered a page of script and we sent that to Todd knock to draw while Zeb wrote the next page. And it was like, Todd got that drawn art page. He did enhance pencils. So they were much tighter. He didn't need inks. Got that back to us when the next page of script came in and we send that script page to Todd. And then we take the the line art from Todd and got it to Jared Fletcher. And I forget if it was, I think it was Chris Chuckery who colored it. Uh, oh no, it was Frank D'Armada who colored it. Chuckery did the cover. And it was just like a lot of, it was just like every, it felt like we were willing it into existence. And I remember we basically finished it the night it had to go to press and I remember Steve Wacker looks at me. He's like, boy, I don't want to see Barack Obama's face again after as long as I live after this. 
<laughs> which was very funny given it was a month before uh, before he would be sworn in. And so we finished this and it was like the holiday season and, and you know, we get it out the door. It's like 11 at night. It's done. And I feel like we almost forgot about it. And that was what was so exciting. It's like we almost forgot about this comic. And then a month later, it became this huge thing. I think uh, Phil Jimenez and Steve were on Nightline and it got all this attention. And like I like I pointed, I still have my, you know, like that was one of the first copies that came in. That I still have to this day. And that was it was really exciting. It's it's crazy to me to stop and think that I'll probably never meet Barack Obama, but he has a comic book with my name in it <laughs> in his house. Yeah. And that's crazy. It was it was so fun. I, you know, as you mentioned, I'm politically involved that can't that season, that election season. I was doing a lot of uh, ground volunteer work on the weekends it was like Friday night. I you know, get the last books to the press or, you know, to the, to the printing press and then run to Penn station and go to Pennsylvania where I was doing campaign work. And it was just that way for months. And so to be a part of something that, that made a huge impact in the moment while having been personally, you know, again, I, I just did volunteer work. I'm not pretending I was, you know, some big part of the campaign. I don't, you know, I'm not expecting the pod save America guys to give me my own show. But uh, although they could, uh, but to be a part of something that, you know, made it that 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 was a, a prominent part of the pop culture zeitgeist that moment was really exciting and really rewarding. And a thing that, you know what, I, I was back and forth on whether or not I want to tell the story, but I don't work at Marvel anymore. So I'll, I'll tell it a thing I found out a few months later, uh, 2008, 2009 for the publishing industry, not a great time economically. And I was told by someone that Marvel Publishing had been at risk of facing a budget shortfall the quarter. And budget shortfall means we missed our marks. We didn't make money. And it means layoffs. And because of uh, that amazing Spider-Man comic, they actually made up the entire shortfall and had a little bit of a budget surplus. And so because of what we did, people did not lose their jobs. And that is the thing to me that will stay with me forever. It's just like... You know, this one little five page, you know, goofy story at the end where Spider-Man and Barack Obama fight the chameleon, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) you know, in the middle of an economic recession where, you know, people lost their jobs. There weren't their jobs were not waiting for them if they had lost those jobs. Knowing that we save jobs is a thing that I will be proud of for the rest of my life. And that is that that was the best part of that process to me. So like kind of playing off that a little bit, you know, what do you think of the idea, you know, moving away specifically from the Obama issue, but the idea of comic books as a political medium? I mean, you know, like obviously we referred to it earlier, social media, you know, kind of exaggerates and accelerates everything. We see creators who, you know, maybe are a little more politically forward in terms of, you know, announcing their viewpoints either on Twitter or other social media or insert their viewpoints, or I guess their, their readers feel that they insert their viewpoints into the comics themselves, whether, you know, that could be open to interpretation, I guess. Certainly if the readers disagree with those viewpoints, they kind of get dismissed as, oh, you're just an SJW, you know, and, you know, like that's kind of the the wave it off thing. So I I guess, you know, for you, you know, again, as a political guy, but also as someone who worked in this medium, who worked in superheroes, I mean, aren't superheroes innately social justice warriors? I mean, isn't that kind of like the whole point? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, what what do you think of this whole thing about, oh, don't don't get political or I, I mean, just just 
would love to hear you kind of riff on this a yeah, little bit. Yeah, <laughs> uh, thank you for asking. I think, and I'm going to start by being magnanimous. Anyone who follows me on Twitter knows that I'm a partisan hack. Very comfortable <laughs> with that. Own that pretty well. But I think a thing that I uh, that always would kind of irk me, uh, and I still see it today. You know, and, and I, you know, people. I, I, as you guys mentioned, I work in in the realm of politics now, and so people. I fortunately, I know, I know a lot of people are comic book fans uh, in that world, and that's exciting, and it's cool to have stuff to talk about. But you know. I always get bothered when people say Captain America would definitely be a and then sort of like fill in the blank, whatever political affiliation, because it's sort of like for everyone who can expertly argue that, you know, or any superhero for that matter. But like, I guess the example I always come to is Batman for any person who can sort of expertly argue like Batman's about self-reliance and sort of taking on the system. You don't need the police for this and that and the other. You know, it's a Republican character. There will be someone else who can argue it's like, you know, a, a guy who a rich person who dresses up like a bat to help fight crime and do right by, you know, poor people is is an inherently left leaning character. And you'll see that, too. And it's like you would hope they'd stop and realize like, oh, yeah, maybe both of these things could be true. And that means that a lot of political ideologies, even ones I disagree with, have noble elements in them. <laughs> like, like if you can see your politics reflected in superheroes and someone else can too, like maybe you'd stop and think like, all right, so perhaps there's part of your politics, whether I agree with them or not, that comes from a decent place. But stepping away from my my attempt at both sides is in there like, yeah, comics should be political in that like, you know, to, to a point. I can appreciate like I can appreciate before the moment we're in. I think the moment we're in is very unique because we are dealing with. And again, I don't want to and come here to be political, so I don't want to alienate any listeners. But like we are dealing with a moment where I think you are seeing elements in the political system that are doing explicitly and overtly dangerous and destructive things. And I can, you know, so in that moment, I there's part of me that's like. There's part of me, it's like, how could a superhero comic not comment on this moment in time and not comment on, not explicitly comment on what's good or bad. But I can also appreciate, like, you know, if you, like, pick up an average issue of, like, like I'll make fun of DC since I never worked there. (laughs) It's like if someone picks up an issue of Robin and Robin's like, boy, this is worse than the Bush administration. I'd be like, all right, come on, man, just get to the, punch the crocodile all right let's move it along (laughs) um i can appreciate how people feel that way but i do think like as we said like politics and these sort of social justice issues influence the early comics particularly influence the early marvel comics and going back to my point of what made me excited about marvel comics as a kid is that new york city was a real place and they dealt with real issues and part of that is like you know you stop and think about comics we don't we don't have we don't have we don't have audio we don't have motion it's like we only have so many ways to emotionally connect with the readers and one of it is going to be dealing with political themes and 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 political ideas and i think people just kind of have to to deal with it for lack of a better word and i yeah like it's like the x-men you know was so clearly a, a a metaphor for civil rights. I mean, the only part of it that wasn't obviously a metaphor for civil rights was that the original X-Men book starred a bunch of clean cut white kids in sweater vests. But, you know, like, but still like it, you know, it's, it's been influencing it since the beginning while appreciating that someone might, you know, uh, someone with differing political views might, might feel irritated or shut out. I would encourage that person. I would say, I don't think that this book is trying to get you to change your voter registration right now. I don't think it's trying to get you to vote a certain way. It's trying to get you to think a certain way. 
uh, or think a different way. And I would urge those people like, you know, don't don't pick up this book thinking if I like this issue of Uncanny X-Men by the end, then I'm going to have to vote for the Democratic Socialists of America. <laughs> think <laughs> if I like it at the end, maybe it'll help expand my viewpoint. Maybe it'll help expand my viewpoint. You know, if you're confident in your belief system, then something that expands your viewpoint will help you make that belief system better. And like I said, I'm a partisan hack and a partisan hack of the left, but I am blessed and fortunate to have more than a few conservative friends and, and, and more than a few who I work very closely with. And I've seen through them the positive attributes of what they believe in. And the, 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 I understand the good reasons that brought them to those ideologies. I wish we saw more of it in the world, frankly. I'm like, I, you know, I say that and it sounds like I'm being cynical or unfair and maybe I am, but you know, I, uh, my, my colleague, Robert George, who I co-produced my podcast, Electoral Dysfunction with, he's a, he is a, a Republican. And if every Republican were Robert George, you know, I wouldn't be one still, but I would, <laughs> the world would be a better place, you know, because, you know, every political ideology has something positive to give, you know, in, in some doses, not every, that's not, let me, not everyone, a lot of them have positive things to have, positive things to give. And you would hope that someone who goes to an artistic experience goes to be challenged to help make their point of view stronger. Uh, it is disappointing to me when people are like, oh, I'll never read it again. And even more disappointing to me when companies are like, oh, okay, then we'll stay away from this issue. We don't we don't want to bother you. I worked in comics with artists and creators who were pretty, you know, some of whom were pretty conservative and I with whom I had very differing points of view and I enjoyed working with them. And we had good conversations and productive ones where we aired out our differences. And I think it made the work better. And I think that understanding, you know, and again, like I say that, acknowledging that it is a very, I think, privileged thing to suggest, like, oh, just sit down and talk with them, because there are some people you can't sit down and talk with. And also, I can, you know, there are people, particularly in this moment in political time, who, like, by sheer, you know, sheer existence for some people in this country is a political act. And it's not fair to ask them to t- to always take on the burden of of making the first step to fix things. But the goal of art is, like, I find, is, like, it's a it's a place that, you know, all are welcome to, to learn and listen. You know, you may not like it and it might, it might, you know, it might affect you. It might make you uncomfortable and you're going to have to be uncomfortable because the, that's what the art is. But it is a, in my, my approach to it has always been like the goal of the art that I put out. I'm going to be honest about what I say. I'm going to be honest about my beliefs, but I welcome everyone to see it and review it and learn from it what they take from it what they will i hope that college essay answer i just gave you was helpful (laughs) (laughs) i think one thing i would say what made me laugh about the obama thing again like we at the time we i remember i was at a convention a few months later and someone came up and again not to stereotype them but they, they they looked like straight out of like the like matt drudge cosplay uh, award. Uh, <laughs> they're like, we noticed that you had Barack Obama on the cover. Why wouldn't you ever have John McCain on the cover? And I, you know, again, I think I mentioned I'm not the, mo- I was at the time a very, very quieter person, but I, I just grabbed the mic and responded. I was like, well, we did that because Barack Obama did this interview with the New York Times. So I think you would agree uh, a company saying, oh, we can make a lot of money off of this is a smart capitalist decision, right? And it was like, and by the way, if John McCain wants to go and talk about how much he loves New Warriors, I will put him on the cover of a New Warriors book tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that got a big laugh in the room. 
that's the other thing. It's like, it always made me laugh at the time that people would be like, oh, you're spreading socialist propaganda. Like, first of all, Marvel at the time was owned by still Ike Perlmutter and <laughs> run by him, who is not by any stretch of the imagination, a socialist. <laughs> it's like, and second of all, we made a sheer capitalistic move to make some money and <laughs> cash in on this moment in history. <laughs> USA. Uh I lost my train of thought there. <laughs> well, that's fine. Uh, you know, so, some of these politics sound their way into brand new day stories like Power to the People from the, the Gauntlet <laughs> run. And, and, and that series of stories which featured the return and sometimes reinvention of Spider-Man's classic rogues, I, I, I see cited as amongst the best that era had to offer. Can you speak to like the creative goals behind mm. the Gauntlet and, and your feelings looking back on it? Absolutely. Yeah. The big thing was uh, we wanted to keep those kinds of villains like the big heavy hitters off the off the board for most of the year. I know that was the the man that was one other mandate that came in. It was like six months or so, you know, I think because I think that was later in that first year that they came in. But the goal was keep them off off the board. Let's play with some new villains. Let's maybe revamp some weirder villains on the side and also go all in on Pete and sort of bring him up to speed. So that when they came back, they came back and you really felt the impact. And something that I never liked, and I know Steve didn't like, and most people who'd ever worked on Spider-Man didn't like, sometimes Spider-Man villains were kind of reduced to being jokes, particularly the Rhino. Like the Rhino would get brought in in a comic just to get beat up in the first two pages. And then, you know, your new nondescript character from the 90s who wore like a vest or a trench coat would, would, would kick his butt quickly and be like... And be like, what a dumb name and costume. High five, everyone. And I was like, I love the Rhino. Rhino's one of my favorite characters. Like, he's the best. And the goal was, like, let's bring them back and show people why these are the scary, why this is, like, one of the most memorable rogues galleries of all time. Like, no one remembers the Masters of Evil. Everyone remembers the Sinister Six. I say this as a Masters of Evil super fan, but come on. We know the Sinister Six matters in a way that mo- that no other villain team in most of comics, particularly in Marvel comics, though, has. And so, yeah, like that was an executive point. Like, like the Electro story was, you know, it w- the thought was, how can we bring them back in a way that's also relevant to New York City of today and the America of today? And uh, something that's really neat about all of Pete's villains, like you have Norman Osborn and, and, and Doc Ock, who are these sort of maybe like grander megalomaniacal people. But the rest of them, rest not the rest of them, most of his villains are as working class as Pete is. And I think that's a really cool thing. And like, you know, they're the kinds of characters like I think the like I used to joke that like, you know, Electro and Sandman are the kind of characters who, you know, if Dr. Octopus was like, I'm going to destroy the world would be like, uh, where would we live? <laughs> are you nuts? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, and so, yeah, the thought was like Electro like have them come back and it sort of played a little bit on those a little bit on your sort of tea party occupy wall street kind of themes of like a populist villain getting people behind him which was a big motive uh then you went a little bit in the opposite direction with rhino where it was this guy just trying to restart his life and and uh getting dragged back into a life of crime trying trying so hard to be good and on and on down the line what was so fun about that was like even you know, in some cases, we saw some costume redesigns, particularly with Electro. 
But in uh, like Sandman, there wasn't a costume redesign, but it was just a like, what if this guy went nuts and became like, <laughs> just be, you know, like, like he, you know, when he came back, he's like, he's dominating Governor's Island. He's turned it in like every bit of that island is him. And it's like, what happens to someone who can do that? And he's trying to create that. And what's he trying to do? He's trying to create a fake world for this little girl who, you know, is, is so important to him. And that was, it was, it, it was a chance to reinvest in them and bring them back and make them matter to this new, to the, this new millennium of storytelling and, and in a way that they hadn't for years. And not to say that, like, I think particularly, I, I really like that Mark Miller Spider-Man series that had come out shortly before that run. And I think he made good use of those villains, but they still hadn't been revamped. He just sort of really showed you it was cool about them here. Like we took them off the board and then brought them back and gave them new meaning and motivation. And that was really cool and fun. Uh, and what was also cool again, yeah, exactly. You said the cool thing about that gauntlet was that we sort of gave each creator their own room to kind of, to, to spin a tail. And at that same time I was working on, we, we brought back web of Spider-Man as an anthology series. And I got to work with Fred Van Lente on, we did these sort of retellings of, of the origin stories in a way that sort of brought people up to speed, but gave a new new spin on it, brought in other characters that they hadn't normally played in Spider-Man's world. I think Electro and Magneto have a bit of a throwdown and Mysterio and Doctor Strange. And and that was a fun that was a fun way to to create valuable supplementary material. Sometimes the anthology series uh, at the time could could feel like this was sort of the the garbage bin for the for the books that the stories that we that we didn't really have time to to let to let really you know fly and here was a chance where we actually like planned it around it and that was that was a lot of fun to work on one thing i really also want to add just a great thing about that moment in time is that like by the the fact that the rhino kept getting brought up by steve and, and tom brevoort as sort of the example of the character who we don't want to make silly anymore we want him to be a heavy hitter was that I was working on a book, you know, I wanted a rhino type character to be this sort of heavy hitter, but I agreed with that. And thus the hippo was born, which is <laughs> just an anthropomorphic hippo who, you know, existed just to get beat up. That is my lasting contribution to the Marvel universe. And if I see that hippo played by, I assume, Kevin James in an upcoming MCU film, you know, I will be showing up in the Disney lot looking for my check. Uh, that's awesome obviously brand new day was a huge part of your legacy and you know the spider-man books of the of the last uh decade or so but the i i think the other kind of bookend certainly to to your tenure at marvel and on spider-man was uh superior spider-man you know as as controversial as brand new day was superior spider-man that era (laughs) that you also worked on seemed to be kind of doubly so. I mean, very polarizing. You had the writer of the book getting death threats on social media. I mean, just crazy all around. How is that for you as an editor working on the book at the time? What was the environment working on a book like that? Uh, well, I, you know, I didn't, I only did a little bit of work on that book. I remember I was more involved in the the planning stages. And then I, that was around the time that I moved over to the, to the X-Men office. But the most important thing is like, I just remembered the death threats and we, there's a gentleman who has done some consulting with Marvel in the past named uh, Jimmy West, who is a, uh, 
uh, retired NYPD detective who by fate I had known back when we both worked at CBS. And then uh, we ran into each other again in the comics world. And Jimmy is a fascinating guy. He looks like a 1950s detective, this big burly bald guy, and he likes to wear a fedora. So my job was to uh, screen grab all of those death threats and send it to Jimmy West for review. And I've gotten to know his family pretty well. And so it's funny that now when I email him, he's like, you got any death threats? I'm like, nope, just check it in. It's like, good. Um, I want to talk from a creative standpoint, what was so exciting about that was that like, like he, Dan did something that no one's ever done well, I think in comics ever. It's like he made a supervillain into a good guy in a way that felt organic and right to the storytelling, you know? Like, normally, if a supervillain becomes the good guy, for lack of a better word, it's, you know, they they go through a complete personality change. And, like, just that idea of Dr. Octopus, I mean, he, and, you know, I use good guy loosely, like, he basically became what a supervillain thinks a superhero is, and that was so fascinating and interesting and created, you know, similar to, to Brand New Day, that idea of, like, like things that you never thought someone would do as Spider-Man. And once you do it, then what else can you do? And 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 he played around with that. And it opened the door for so many great books for Superior Foes of Spider-Man, uh, Superior Team-Up, Scarlet Spider, which I worked on a little bit at the time, you know, all had that, all kind of grew out of that and that new reality. Something that I, I remember very well at the time is that like, Dan Slott was, had had that sort of meticulously planned out from the jump you know again while allowing for you know whatever new neat creative changes but i know like he had it so so clearly planned out and i remember uh he i remember him sort of pitching it to it had already been approved but i we were at a a dinner at c2e2 and it was him myself ryan stegman and cullen bunn and he just took them all through it and i had read it uh, but I'd never seen him sort of pitch it. And I was like captivated. I remember just watching it. We were at, we were at Luminalities in uh, Chicago, one of them. Uh, and I remember like he was like, <laughs> he was like just like acting it out physically at the table. And I will never forget that. And I think like Rick Remender was nearby and like popped over and he's like, what is happening? <laughs> and I was like, uh, Dan's taking us through the next 12 years of Spider-Man. You know, it was such an exciting thing to, to, to hear about. And, in comics at that point, I had learned that like, you know, 50% of the most incredible ideas you hear, like that's it. You hear the pitch and that's it. And what I think was more exciting than that was just like to see him bring that to fruition was, was really cool. Like to see him be like, and then this is going to happen. And then a year later, that's what happens. Uh, that was very cool uh, and, and very exciting. Mark and I, obviously we started our show because we loved superior Spider-Man so much, but there was this kind of like interesting thing going on in the pages, like the letters pages and kind of online where, you know, in addition to Dan Slott kind of like playing up, like the, I killed Spider-Man thing, like I'm the bad guy kind of thing. It seemed like the editorial team was kind of playing the heel at the time. Did you guys embrace that kind of like adversity and like lean into like, we're the bad guys? You know, I know Steve certainly does. <laughs> uh, um, uh, I would say I think heel is a great way to put it because it's similar to pro wrestling, that that notion of like if fans are upset but still buying the book, then they like it. 
you know, like they'll say they're mad, but it, it's a thing I was, I was talking about this with a friend. It's a friend of mine was complaining about Jim Carrey as Joe Biden on SNL. And I was like, then stop watching it. He's like, but I got to see how they get out of this problem. And that's the only time I've seen a TV show sort of treated the same way as, as comic book fans do. Like comic book fans treat comics almost more like a sports team than like narrative fiction. Cause like, if you don't like something that happens in the new season of a show, like you generally stop watching the show. A thing I love about comic book fans is they're like, I hate this. It's like, well, then why are you buying it? It's like, well, of course I love it, but I don't want it to happen to him anymore. I care about Pete. And you're like, okay, you're emotionally invested. And I think, yeah, that's where it kind of came from was like provoking that controversy was a good way to get attention. I, but I, I would say like knowing that the, knowing that the audience was angry but showing up meant the audience was saying we're game we're in for this you know i can be someone who can get a little irked and like this may be going back to the the politics thing too you know i i can get a little irked at times at what i view as you know creators or people behind not just comics but any show in my view it feels almost like they might be picking a fight with the 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 audience for fun and there are moments where i'm like all right these are your your customers they're the reason they're (laughs) maybe don't be so hard on them I'm a believer, like, when you do that, you have to be doing it knowing the audience is game for this debate. And I think that was the thing. It was like, we had already, like, you know, Dan had, Dan let Dr. Octopus win. He killed Peter Parker twice. (laughs) And the audience was, the readers were still showing up. So the readers were still showing up. They were saying, we're game for this debate. And that was the thing about it. Like, I think, and I, and I would say, like, you know, I joked about that before that Steve, you know, it, it can be someone comfortable mixing it up with the fans. But I think he likewise approached it from the standpoint of mixing up with the fans who want to be mixed up with, you know, like it's not just picking on the fans. It's let's, you know, people are interested. Let's do this. Like it was almost like it was like a bizarro version of like the Stan Lee letters pages. <laughs> like it's like back in the olden days, like the Stan Lee letters, <laughs> it was a clubhouse. It's like now we're like, all right, we're picking a fight in the clubhouse. You know, but again, the club was game. The club was game for it, and that that was a cool thing about it. I am someone when I did letters pages, I tended to be more abstract and weird rather than confrontational. <laughs> um, <laughs> like I, I did a letters page for a superior, uh, not superior, the Sinister Spider Man, which was during the Dark Rain books, which is a book just focusing on Mark, Mac Gargan as Venom. And the the questions were answered by, I think, uh, Matt Gargan and the symbiote and occasionally me. And the symbiote just kept threatening people throughout. So my approach is normally a little weirder and more avant-garde. But I think like Dan, the great thing about Dan Slott, Steve Wacker and like and everyone who worked on those books is like they were they are the biggest Spider-Man fans on the planet, maybe bigger than than like the fan fans like. So it they know how to approach it from a standpoint of like a fan argument, not just that, you know, I remember looking back on it and it's funny now to work in a completely different field and know that like, you know, figuring out how to respond to like at Spidey fan 28 <laughs> was the biggest was like that there were meetings to be like, how do we best how do we make sure that we're mixing it up, but being fun and funny that those meetings happened, you know, in a place of business is very funny to me. <laughs> I guess kind of tied to all this, you know, these, these, these multiple errors that you worked on. I mean, kind of looking back, I mean, are there, what are some of the pressures that are unique to the spider office? I guess when compared to the rest of Marvel's editorial teams and, and do you, do you feel that those pressures are reflected in the title itself? And, 
you know, if so, I mean, what could we as readers and critics stand to learn about, you know, I guess kind of the process and how you guys react to the unique situations that you find yourselves in due to maybe factors that we're not privy to because, you know, we're, we're kind of on this end and we're just reading the book and either complaining about it or loving it online or whatever. <laughs> I think, uh, what I, what I really have come to admire about anyone who's worked on Spider-Man and it is neat to me to know that I edited the same book that, you know, I mean, assistant edited, associate edited, whatever you need to say. Like, but I was part of the editorial team for the same book whose editorial team had once included Stanley as very interesting and cool. But I think the the big challenge is, well, so you have these, you know, the way Marvel was laid out at the time, and it might still be laid out this way. I wouldn't 100 percent know. But you had sort of your like Marvel heroes, Avengers office, your Spider-Man office your ultimate line of comics and the Hulk office and then the X-Men office. And, you know, who are the most in-demand characters to show up in other Marvel books? It's going to be your sort of core four Avengers, Spider-Man and, you know, anyone from the X-Men world. And I think what what could be a challenge and, you know, I I see I can see in the books now that like Nick Lowe and his team are, are, are uh, meeting this challenge as well as anyone is that other offices will want to use your characters and if another office wants to use an x-men character and you want to use wolverine but you can't use wolverine for whatever reason you know there's another character that you can pull if they want to use spider-man like they're probably gonna you know in a different book they're probably gonna get to use spider-man and i think you know making sure that that character is stays on brand and stays you know that the voice is right and it's consistent with with what you're doing in the book is an extra layer of challenge, you know, like you can kind of let it slide if Forge shows up, you know, in an Avengers book and he like says, yo, what's up, y'all? You'd be like, Ugh, that's not what he says, but whatever. It's just you know, like, we'll live. This won't damage the entire X-Men brand. <laughs> uh, you know, Spider-Man, like you have to if Spider-Man's going to show up in any other book, the the Spidey, someone from the Spidey office, probably the lead editor is going to have to read that script, too. And that's just extra work to have to do. And I think that is a challenge and not to say that like, I don't think there's ever, you know, like I, I think sometimes people in comics can kind of project some insidious motives on uh, other creators when they borrow your characters. I'm not one of those people. I, I think, I think the editors at Marvel when I worked there and certainly knowing the editors who are there now are some of the sharpest and most, I think most invested in getting things right. A uh, group of people that, that I know in the industry but, you know, they're they they are going to put, you know, they are going to want to use Spider-Man in this book. And, you know, any time any writer gets to use Spider-Man, they're going to get excited and they're going to want to jam everything that they always wanted to do with Spider-Man into one character. And, you know, that may contradict or or negate or cause headaches for whoever, you know, whatever's happening in the main book. And so I think I, my heart always goes out to the Spidey team. Like every, I'm a, I'm always rooting for every Marvel editorial office, but like literally now in my day job, now I, as I mentioned, I work for the city and anytime I'm, you know, I, I work with our media team and anytime there's an event, like we did a back to school push a few weeks ago and we got this great shot of a kid walking, wearing a Spider-Man backpack. And I just immediately send that tweet over to Nick Lowe. <laughs> Cause it's like, you got just because like the Spidey office is my, that is my home. You know, that's my, my, uh, that's my old, that's my, I'm an alumni. It's my old home. And I, I think anytime I see Spider-Man in another book, I'm like, ah, oh, they had to read this and make sure it was right. So I think that's a big pressure. It's weird again, because the Avengers have become these, this big 
worldwide phenomenon. You know, so Captain America and Black Panther and Iron Man and Hulk and, and Thor and all those characters matter now to people. Captain Marvel, Scarlet Witch, all those characters matter to people. So they've become, they might be having a bigger moment. But ultimately, Spider-Man is the flagship character. You know, he's the lines like he's he's on the checks <laughs> that they give out. You know, if anyone gets checks anymore, like he is that important of a character to the brand. And I think sometimes, you know, like I, I, I would say that the pressure that that any editorial office has working with him is like, you know, remembering that at the end of the day, your job is to do right by this character. And, and, and he is that important. I, I forget the name of the study, but I know when I was working at Marvel, we got a, a study that the marketing department found. I think that Spider-Man is, if not the, then he's like maybe like him and Mickey Mouse are like one or two as like the most well-known character on the planet. And something that Into the Spider-Verse movie got so perfect is unlike every other, when you think of like your big superheroes everyone knows, it's generally like it's Superman, Batman, Spider-Man. Spider-Man's face is entirely covered. So literally any person like you can project yourself onto that character no matter your ethnicity no matter your gender or or or, or whatever like you can project yourself onto that character and people do and they love that character so much you know that is the that's a unique pressure that no other office in that building has and you know doing right by those people doesn't mean kowtowing to their every want but it means like giving that character your all and giving him a little extra attention than you might give, you know, uh, D man. <laughs> so um, the final question we ask all of our creators who come on the show is the one that I want to ask you before we send you off to wherever it is you're going on Dinner. a Sunday night. And that is what, what does it mean to you to be a part of a very small percentage of mankind to have worked on the Spider-Man comic. And I mean, like, what does it mean to you personally to have shaped the life of this man, this fictional man, Peter Parker? It means the world to me. I got, ex I remember uh, when Into the Spider-Verse won the Oscar, I, out of nowhere, was like, like, I felt like I won. I jumped out of my couch and I was like, yeah. Uh, and I haven't worked on Spider-Man in, in, you know, several years at this point, but exactly as you said, so few people get a chance to work on it. And it is a, it is an honor. It is the thing I get asked about wherever I work. I work for the mayor of New York right now. He is the second most asked about thing when people find out what I've done. The, you know, when people find out about my jobs, it's like Spider-Man, then, then what I'm doing now. It is, you know, to the day I die, I'm going to be, you know, even when I'm riddled with dementia, I, <laughs> I will be speaking of Spider-Man. It's it's a I'm hugely honored. And I think to, to have had the chance to work on it, I can never thank Steve Wacker enough for hiring me all those years ago and, and, and taking that chance on me. And nine times out of 10, the people I talk to about Spider-Man, the fans who I talk to about it, talk about how much he means to them personally and uh, nine times out of 10, they, the fans could not be nicer or more excited to talk about Spider-Man. Even if they didn't like the stories, they still are excited to hear about it. And knowing I was a small part of something that gave so much joy and comfort to people across the planet is a humbling experience. Tom, we don't want to take too much more of your time, but you know, I, I, we, we do want to give you an opportunity here to kind of 
plug any work you got going on or, or you know, kind of appeal the fans to, to stop tweeting at you and harassing you <laughs> Actually, or, you know, or, you know, like open forum here, you know, you know in terms of, I'm, I'm going to do of, something of, for the fans. Of things Sorry, up. I interrupted you. I'm going to do something for the fans. You know what? If you want to tweet something bad about Spider-Man, I don't work there anymore. So you know what? At Brennanator, just hit it. I'll take it. I'll take it. I'm out. <laughs> Go ahead. Leave whoever. I don't actually know who works on it right now. Uh, I don't know, there's just take the whole burden yeah, leave them all hit me uh hey when's this gonna air is this gonna air before election day because i'll just tell people to vote um, or you can cut that if it's easier it will probably air this week okay great get out and vote whoever you vote for i'm not going to tell you who to vote for because this is you know in the in this book but please vote our, our country needs you more than ever you can go to i think when we all vote.org is a good resource website or any of your local uh your local voting uh, apparatus <laughs> voting apparatus that's not you know what i'm trying to say and folks can find me my podcast is uh electoral dysfunction quarantined it's we used to do a stage show and now we do it via podcasts myself uh robert george who i mentioned earlier who's a opinion columnist for bloomberg opinion and a panel of comedians and experts we talk about the news of the week and make fun of it and yell at each other but normally by the end we're all back on the same page and just for the comic book connection, I'll shout out my buddy Declan Shalvey and Jordy Belair, who designed our electoral dysfunction eagle that we use in our show every week. They did it for me once years ago. Oh, and that's I super cool. It. Yeah. Let's see anything else to plug. Nah, that's it. <laughs> I got nothing else going on. Read TKO Comics. Their stuff is great. I don't work there, but it's just wonderful books. TKO. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it was a blast. And we hope we can have you on again soon to talk in more detail about the time on, you worked on the book. Uh, this was so much fun to talk about it. Like I forgot how much I loved it until we had this conversation. So thank you for having me. Well, thanks again to Tom Brennan for joining us this week on the show. It was a lot of fun to have him on and he's been someone we've wanted to have on for a long time. So it was great to hear his insights and I, I hope we can get him back again soon for more specific detail when we get to the brand new day era on our show which seems like an eventuality but also forever away yeah yeah i mean we're probably about four or five seasons away at the very least but tom was a great guest and i'm, I'm really excited that we finally got to have him on dan but alas dan it is that time time for all of the good things in life to come to an end or at least this episode so we want to say thank you to you the listeners and viewers for tuning into this episode of the amazing spider talk yeah, and this episode, as always, was edited by Rick Coast with production support from Andy Myers. Our artwork comes handcrafted by some of our favorite artists, and they are Ron Friend, Sal Buscema, and Ray Sumzer. And our theme songs were produced by Rylan Bojack and Spider Madge. Plus, our introduction animation and musical stinger comes from Josh Sutton from the YouTube show Panels to Pixels. So, Mark, until we get an issue of Amazing Spider-Man with Donald Trump on the cover... What's our credo? Oh, that would be the most fantastic, terrific, strongly ep issue of Amazing Spider-Man ever, for sure. But before that, or until that, our credo, would, of course, would be, with great podcasts, there must also come the Amazing Spider-Talk. Don't, don't miss the next